Um, we're continuing in our series, uh, God's Plan for the Family. And today, we want to talk about growing a gospel culture in your home. Growing a gospel culture in your home. Now, there is no doubt that the family, as understood and defined by Scripture, is in serious trouble in our contemporary times. In fact, there are few institutions in our society where breakdown and disintegration is so evident. Yet, even in the face of this breakdown and this disintegration of the family, in a very real sense, so little is being done to rectify the circumstance. And unfortunately, even the people of God often stand idly by and watch the train wreck of modern family life with little or no comment. We've been too silent when it comes to these issues that are bursting onto the landscape of our modern culture. We've been quiet as we've watched family after family after family be destroyed by the sin and the evil that is the source of that sin. More and more, we see one community organization after another rise up and claim that they have the answer to what's wrong with our families. But yet the number of divorces continues to rise as people treat marriage as a disposable commodity. The number of marriages continues to fall as younger generations having viewed the mess made by their parents and predecessors. Yes, I said that. Believe, these young people believe that marriage is now unnecessary as a foundational element to modern family life. The family, as described in the Word of God, is now subject to the sinful whims of human fallibility. In other words, we are seeing our families oppressed by sinful inclinations, by people who are treating uh, family life and marriage with such disdain that it's almost as if you're using a paper cup or a paper towel. You just throw it away when you're tired of it. So as we navigate this series on the family, it is important to understand the basic foundation of family life as described by the scripture. Having a healthy family or preparing for a healthy family is much like tending a garden. How many horticultural people do I have in here? Anybody tend garden? That's right. Kind of grow stuff. That's, that's wonderful. You know, you're tending a garden. You have to pay attention to that garden. The soil, help me if I'm wrong here, the soil is as important as the seed. Is that right? The water is as important as the sunshine. 
Soil, seed, rain, and sun are all ingredients necessary for growth. Now, so it is with the family. Wisdom from God, the understanding of honor and authority, as well as a gospel-rich foundation are all necessary for a healthy family. Today, we will look at various scriptures that speak directly to how we should plant and cultivate the garden of our family. We will examine the elements necessary to cultivate this gospel culture in our homes. This is important, my brothers and sisters, whether you are married, single, or a single parent, because every home where believers in Christ reside should seek to cultivate a culture of the gospel within the home. Now, some of this teaching today might be new to some of you. That's all right. Turn to your neighbor and say, I like new stuff. Amen. Who doesn't like new stuff, right? So what defines culture in the home? Now, by definition, culture is the belief, custom, arts, or et cetera, of a particular society, group, a place, or a time. Now, interestingly enough, when one looks at the scientific definition of culture, one finds that culture is something growing in a Petri dish. Now, I remember that from from chemistry class and biology class and in school we had those little dishes and you would grow the culture, the bacteria, and you get to look at it under the microscope. You know, that, that Petri dish can have bacteria, disease, or, or even things that cure diseases. Now, if we juxtapose this with our modern families, what is it that's growing in our Petri dish? Oh, you're going to pray with me today? What's in your Petri dish? Every home has its own culture. Your beliefs, your customs, the way you do things. Every family has its own culture. Now, as sure as we are that modern families often have a culture about them that is destructive and negative and even harmful due to the fallen nature of humanity, we can be even more sure, my brothers and sisters, that God offers the right answer to what ails our homes and our families. So the operative question is how? How do we grow a gospel-centered, a gospel foundation, a gospel culture in our homes? How do we get to the right culture? Now, let me tell you something right now. I want you to think right now if you are one who has to admit in your heart that you haven't been cultivating the right culture. Amen? This is a place of freedom. So just throw your hand up real fast so I see that you haven't been cultivating the right culture in your home. Don't be embarrassed about it because some of this you have never, ever been taught how to do. Many of us in our family lives have taken patterns from previous generations that have been dysfunctional. Amen? 
Last week I talked to you about dysfunctional families and, and how dysfunction gets handed down generation to generation. Some of us saw how granddaddy treated grandmama and we saw how dad treated mom. And ultimately when we got married, we just kept it going. And it was not the way in which God would have our families to be. So how do we do this? How do we do this? This is not one of those messages where you're going to get a, you ought to be doing better. I want to share with you how you can do this because we need to apply these things to our family lives. And certainly with the circumstances that families are facing, we need the ability to apply the godly solution. So what's the first thing that's necessary for the right culture? The first thing that's necessary is the fear of God. The culture of a wise family. The first thing we must have is the fear of God. Now I want to explain what that fear means. Because we're not talking about terror. We're not talking about being terrified of God. A lot of times we think of fear. You know, you think of going and watching a horror show or something like that. We're not talking about terror. We're talking about a healthy reverence and holy respect for God, for who he is. If you don't get anything else today, get this. Everything rises and falls on right theology. You're going to hear me say that quite a bit as we navigate this ministry at Bethel Gary. Everything rises and falls on right theology. What does that mean? It means that you must have the proper understanding of who God is in order to get to the right understanding of who you are. I can't understand who I am until I understand who God is, the one that made me, the creator and the sustainer of all life, the one that stepped out on nothing and said, let there be, and there was. And so everything rises and falls on right theology, and, and many of us maybe have come up in, in communities and cultures where theology was almost like a bad word. But theology simply means in its simplest form, knowing God. And if you're going to be a Christian, you need to know the God that you worship. He is not hiding who he is from us, but is revealing himself to us every day and through his word. And so we've, everything starts with right theology. The culture of a wise family. Now, look at Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. When we start with wisdom, Solomon here writes these words. He says, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Now look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Watch this now. The first dynamic or ingredient needed in cultivating a gospel foundation is godly wisdom. Everybody say godly wisdom. Now the reason I want you to say that is because so much of what passes 
for wisdom in our modern world is actually birthed in the limited mind of sinful humanity. In other words, we get a lot of tips on how to do things from the world. Do I have a witness there? Now, I know you don't want to admit it today, but a lot of y'all have gotten tips from Oprah on how to deal with your family. That's right. Dr. Phil has become a multimillionaire because he got on TV and Oprah built him, up, built him up and said, here's how you should live. Not to mention the fact that he borrowed some things from Scripture without giving God the credit. Amen. And so we get these tips or suggestions from the world and somehow we make it seem like this is wisdom well let me tell you sometimes the people that you think the most of and trust with with their uh with their knowledge or their tips are not people that are getting that from god so we have to understand where wisdom's starting point wisdom's starting point is the holiness the glory, and the majesty of God. Wisdom does not begin at the fireside chat. Wisdom does not begin in those types of circumstances. Wisdom begins when you recognize who God is. Everything rises and falls on good theology. You got to know God. If your family's in trouble, I dare say that you haven't spent enough time in knowing who God is. You're worried about knowing your your wife or your husband when you ought to be trying to know God. I just said something there. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. So the starting point is the holiness, glory, and majesty of God. Wisdom comes to me as I feel my responsibility to him for worship and obedience. I don't see myself, and neither should we ever see ourselves as God of our families or God of our marriages or God of our children. My marriage and my family is not primarily about my marriage and family or children. Get that. Your marriage and family, our marriage and family is really about God. When you approach your family from that perspective, it gives you a whole nother view of how family life ought to be. Too many brothers have tried to be God in the home. Too many sisters have rebelled and said, you're not God, I am. And too many kids have looked at both parents and said, I'm not thinking about either one of you. It's going to be my way. And consequently, our families are dysfunctional. Oh, I'm going to be by myself on this when I see that. Now, now let, me, let, me, let me help you understand. Joshua understood this principle. As he approached the nation of Israel toward the end of his time, 
And Israel was about to go into the promised land and enjoy all that God had for them. And they had started, started messing around with other gods. And Joshua said to them in Joshua 24 and 15, he says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, you can have the gods of your forefathers that, that ended up in captivity by serving those gods. Or you can serve the gods of the people around you today because you want to fit in to the culture in which you live. You, want to ever, you don't want anybody to talk negatively about you. You want everybody to think that you're cool and you're down and you're able. Come on, when I get to yours, just say something. You, you're able to be, be with everybody and, and, and have an enjoyment of life. Joshua says, those are gods you can serve if you want to. He says, but as for me, I wish I had some as for me Christians in here today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What? What? Wait a minute. What, what would happen in Christian families, if just one leader in the home had the audacity to stand up and say that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Think about that. We are called to serve God. So the starting point for a godly culture in the home is having the right God reigning over it so many other gods compete for that position think about some of the gods that you might know the god of personal comfort the god of materialism the god of raising children who are going to vote the right way hmm? when these are the gods of the home Family relationships become transactional. What that means is when these are the gods of the home, these family relationships become like contracts. I give you what you want, so I get what I want. I know, I know that I know a brother. I was I was counseling a couple one time years and years ago, and the, and the brother came in to me. He said, he said, my wife won't give me what I want. I said, well, why do you think she won't give you what you want? Because I, I, I give her what she want. She won't give me what I want. I said, well, you don't have anything other than the contract. That's no different than your car finance company. Huh? They let you drive the car. You give them that note every month. See what happened when you stop paying the note. <laughs> you thought GMAC and Toyota Credit loved you, didn't you? You thought they really had you as an apple of the eye. They don't care about anything other than the transaction. That's why some of y'all don't answer them 800 numbers. <laughs> I know my note late. I'm not answering. <laughs> See, God wants his, ch 
children not to be people of contract, but people of covenant. Get that now, get that. God doesn't want the family to be a transaction of relationships. He wants covenant relationships. Now, covenant, oh, come on here, somebody. Covenant relationships are not like contracts. In a covenant relationship, it doesn't matter if the other person fulfill their role or not. You're going to do what you're supposed to do. told you he's going to be mad with me today because some of us are living under contract terms how do we get to wisdom well Solomon says this the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom a healthy direct and dynamic reverence for God is the wisest choice you can make in your life and in your home The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you choose to reverence God, it's the wisest choice you can make. Now, let me just throw this in for free. Some of your prayers right now are hindered because you don't reverence God. You just want the benefits of God. Can I say it like this? You want a God with benefits. You're not looking for a covenant relationship with him. You want a God you can hook up with when you're in trouble. You want a God that can pay your bills. You want a God that you can pray to when you don't know what else to do. That's the kind of God that'll come and rescue you. Oh, y'all ain't got to say nothing on that. I know. But see, that's not who he is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you can't treat God like a once, once in a while type of relationship. I'm only going to pray when the night gets dark. Let me move on here. I've sufficiently irritated you on that one. See, you, 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 wisdom begins with that healthy and dynamic relationship and reverence for who God is. Too many Christians became Christians, I suspect, because you heard only part of the gospel. And that was the part where you wouldn't have to go to hell if you believed in Jesus. Huh? I mean, I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to go to hell. Huh, is that right? Wouldn't you agree with that? Nobody wants to go. And so when, especially when they describe hell the way they do. You know, the lake of fire, prepare for the devil and angel, eternal torment, all that stuff. Nope, I don't want that. All I got to do is believe in Jesus. Got me right there. But the gospel is much more than that. You've heard me say before, the gospel is the most transformational message ever heard by human ears. It is a message that changes us from a life of sin to a life of salvation. Being sanctified by the gospel and Jesus' blood every single day of our lives, we are called to this path of sanctification. So let me tell you, since the time you believed in Christ, if you're still the same, I'm going to ask you, what did you believe? Were you looking for a savior or fire insurance? 
So that's so the wisdom begins with God. That's the first thing. Now the second, the second dynamic here, the second dynamic is honor and authority. So you have to understand the culture of an ordered family. Okay? A lot of our families are out of order. Let me say that again. Many of our families in today's society are out of order. Now, what that simply means is, imagine if, 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 if you know, you saw Abel, who works for Pepsi, we're gonna, you know, go to a machine, and the machine has a sign out of order. And we move Abel out the way and say, I don't care what the signs say, I want to keep putting my money in there. All right now. All right now. Abel's going to step back and say, something wrong with this person. Either they can't read <laughs> the sign that says out of order. So now think about this. When you have an out-of-order situation in your home and you get down on your knees and say, God, I need you to bless me. I need you to... God said, why should I invest in something that's out of order? It's out of order. And so many of our families are out of order. God has set an order for the human family that the sinfulness of the human heart rejects and disputes as valid. Our hearts don't want the order that God said. I told you in the first message in this series that, that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, men and women have been striving against one another for order in the home. I'm going to let that marinate for a minute. Here are Three scriptures that describe God's order. First one is this. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Notice how all of this starts with Jesus. The head of every man is Christ. Whether you recognize it or not. Paul puts it like this in another place. He says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. The head of every man is Christ. But watch this now. God says, here's the order. The head of the wife is her husband. That's God's order. Now, I know ladies in here thinking... Pastor, you just don't know my husband. <laughs> Some single ladies here thinking, I will never put myself under the leadership of my boyfriend. So I'm going to ask you a question. Why is he your boyfriend? Why, why would you be bothered with somebody that you would never see yourself as being under their covering or their leadership. See, the reason you do that is because you started not with a spiritual foundation, but with a carnal foundation. He looked good to you. She looked nice to you. All of those things are the reasons, and those are carnal things and not spiritual. So the head, God sets that order. Now, here's another text in case you don't believe that one. In the marriage, 
Ephesians 5, 23 and 20 through 27 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, I need you to understand the, the similes and metaphors that Paul is using in this text. He says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So when you look at the relationship between Christ and the church, you ought to look at the relationship or be a similar relationship between the husband and the wife. So he's setting the tone here for something really transformative that he's going to say next. Watch this now. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Some texts say to their own husbands. <laughs> Amen. I think the King James threw that in just so. Must have been some people back in 1611 that was submitting to their boss at work and not, not to the husband. Submit to your own husband. Now watch this. That relationship is not predicated on anything other than the dynamic relationship between Christ and the church. So wives, as you submit to your husbands, you do show forth submission to Christ in the church. I'm talking about Christian wives right now. Okay? Now, I told you, this is not a contract. Because too many people look at the behavior. See, this is a, this is a minefield I'm going to navigate through it, okay, if you stay with me. You're looking at the behavior of the person and saying, how in the world can I submit to somebody who behaves the way that person does every now and then? And so here, here's what he's saying. If you, you don't look at the behavior as much as you realize that your submission to your husband is a worship to Christ. Okay? Now, that the women are all upset. <laughs> Watch this. Verse 25, men, get ready. Put your seatbelts on because here's your time now. It says, husband, husbands, husbands, love your wives. Now, now here's the qualifier once again, because if I ask most husbands in here today, do you love your wife? Absolutely. I love that gal. I wouldn't have married her if I didn't love her. Hmm? Well, wait a minute. Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But he doesn't stop there. In case you don't know how Christ loved the church, he says, and gave himself up for her. It's some deliverance in the house today. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Men, God has called you to love your wife in a self-sacrificing manner. Look what he says. He gave himself up for her. He sacrificed himself. 
Christ gave himself for the church and a husband ought to give himself up for his wife. Now, watch this. Christ physically died for the church. And a husband ought to be ready to physically give his life for his wife whom he says he loves. To physically die. And listen, this is not something that you ought to just say you'll do. But you ought to be loving your wife in such a way that if anybody was to just walk up to her on the street and say, girl, would your husband die for you? You'd be like, she'd be like, yes, he will. In a heart, you don't even have to be standing there. She'll call her girlfriends and say, girl, you know, my husband will die for me. Now, if your wife won't say that, if she, uh, um, uh, well, um, uh, well, you see, uh, I know he care, but, uh, watch this now. Brothers, the sacrifice is not without purpose. See, here's the thing. We gotta understand in a covenant relationship, there's there's always purpose in sacrifice. When God first instituted the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, there was a purpose to it. He wanted us to begin to see what Christ was going to do with his people to bring us back to God. So we sacrificed lambs, we sacrificed doves, and all this sacrifice was going on. Blood was spilt because it was a forerunner to the sacrifice of Christ. But watch this now. Watch this now. Your sacrifice as a husband is with purpose. Look at what he says. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Y'all don't understand that, do you? He might sanctify her. Y'all waiting for the Holy Spirit to clean up your wife. Watch out now. Watch out now. You, you, and, you and your prayer closet, Lord, do something with this woman I got. Come on, Holy Spirit, do something with her that he might sanctify her. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit might sanctify her here, but that he might, the husband, well, how in the world? See, you can't sanctify somebody you and you not sanctified yourself. Uh-huh. Sanctify means consecrate, be set apart for holiness. If you haven't done that in your own life, men, then how in the world can you do it in the life of your wife? Watch this now. See, I know the men is really hot now. <laughs> Watch this. It's purpose. Having cleansed her, Here's how it's done. By the washing of water with the word. If you're waiting for your wife to get the word from me, that's the wrong dynamic. That's the wrong dynamic. You ought not be waiting for your wife to come to church and get the word of God. She ought to get it from you. Yeah. 
Now, there's a word in here for all our single ladies. If a man can't do that, don't even give him your phone number. Don't, don't, even, don't even give him your number. Don't, just tell him, brother, keep it moving. Keep nothing, nothing to see here. Keep it moving. Watch this now. Here's the reason in verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So in, in, in a very real sense, as Christ has sanctified the church with the washing of the water of the word, so a husband does so with his life. That, so as, as Christ presents to himself this glorious church, a husband presents to himself a wife without spot or wrinkle. Watch this. If you are doing this right, you're making yourself a gift for yourself. There's <laughs> some brothers in here today that haven't even seen the gift you have at home with you. You don't even know how beautiful this thing could be because you've been working on the other side of things. You need to get on God's side. You calling your friends, complaining about your wife. She won't let you do this. She won't let you do that. Are you sanctifying her? Are you washing her with the word? So you can present to yourself that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, let me help you understand. I'm going to throw something in here for free for married couples real quick in in, in just a minute of of time right here because we got to move on. Here's something that that many married couples get, get disconnected with each other on. We start trying to give the other person what we need rather than giving them what they need. Watch this. Go all the way back to verse 25. And it says, husbands, love your wives. Before it says, wives, submit to your husband. Not the same thing, right? So, so here's a husband that's saying, I'm respecting my wife. I respect her and, she's, and, and things won't go right. Well, you're not giving her what she needed. Her greatest need is not respect. Oh, ladies in here looking at me funny. I don't want no man disrespecting me. Hold on, hold on. Your greatest need as a woman is to be loved. God made you that way, to be cherished, to be made number one. With nobody after you. That's your greatest need to know that this man loves you so much he would give his life for you. There's not a woman in here if she would tell the truth today that would not willfully submit to a man that loved her enough to die for her. But wait a minute. Ladies... You've said in your heart that I love my husband. I love him. I know I love my husband, but just our marriage just won't get. I love him. His greatest need is not love. Watch this now. Wives, respect or submit to your husband. There is nothing that turns a man on more than a wife that submits to his leadership. And I'm talking about godly leadership. I ain't talking about if your husband let's go rob a bank. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about godly leadership. 
There is nothing that gets a man more excited in terms of his life and, and order in his life when he realized you let your husband come home one day and, and you're on the phone with a salesman and tell him, I can't make that decision until I talk to my husband. Right. Honey, you won't have to cook for two or three days. I'm just saying, he'll, his chest going to swell all up and he's going to take you out to dinner. And See, ladies, you don't know what you have because you've been giving him what you need. Instead of giving him what he needs, a man needs respect. There's nothing that hurts a man. Once, once you disrespect your husband, let me help you understand why a lot of discussion in the, in the household goes south. Can I say this in here today? A lot of household discussions go south because disrespect shows up. And once disrespect shows up, a man can't hear. He's deaf. He can't hear nothing else you're saying. Now, I'm not talking about he can't physically hear you. I'm saying his whole mind is turned off to you because you have disrespected him. Now, once men prove that they're not loving their wife correctly, same thing happens. You want her to do this, do that, and you haven't loved her correctly? She's not hearing that. It's hard. And so a lot of dysfunction happens because we're giving each other what we want, not what the other one needs. Come on, give God some praise. All right, I'm, 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 I'm going to be finished here in just a second. So the last scripture in this, in this setting order is children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it might be long, well with you and your days may be long on the earth. That's what that commandment says. And so the order of the house, look, when the husband and the wife, the mother and the father are in order in the house, the very natural tendency is for the children to be in order. Teach your children what honor and authority is about. And sometimes in honor and authority, you have to say no when you could say yes. You have to help your children understand that I could say yes, but I'm going to say no. Because one of the lessons you have to learn as a child, and and it helps you in life, is how to deal with adversity. And if we don't intentionally bring adversity into our children's lives, where will they learn that lesson? Do Do you want the first time for them to learn the lesson of adversity when something calamitous happens in their life, when they're 19 years old, away, away at college, and they don't know how to deal with adversity? So they end up going to get high or get drunk to try to deal with adversity? You want to teach them how to deal with it while they're young. So God set an order in the home for the purpose of his own glory and his own honor. And when we set order by honor and authority, we acknowledge God for who he is. This order is really about God and it's not about us. And you got to get that today. The last thing I want to drop in your spirit today is that the very grace of the gospel is the culture of a Christian family. It is the foundation of the gospel itself that makes a home distinctly Christian. It is the commitment to understand the importance of the gospel and the drive to cultivate your home with the gospel that sets the right path for your family. What is the gospel really about? It's really about grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. It's really about grace. An acronym for grace is God's redemption at Christ's expense. That's really what grace is about. It's about redemption. And the sacrifice of Christ. And so when we talk about grace, we have to talk about and understand that, that Christ is the center of our, or center example of grace in our lives. So in Ephesians 2 and 5, 
Paul writes this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he adds this phrase, by grace you have been saved. Grace is defined as undeserved kindness and favor toward another. The gospel is about Christ and his grace towards us. In order to have a gospel foundation in our home, we must be willing to demonstrate grace. Listen, it's not healthy in a home to have emotional terrorism going on. You taking prisoners, as soon as somebody does something wrong, you got them locked up and put them in Guantanamo Bay. They're locked away and reminded every day that they're your prisoner. See, I knew you wasn't right. <laughs> Look at what you did. And we, we hold people hostage so long that we'll bring up things that they've done 20 years ago. I knew when I first met you. And I'm telling you, that's not grace. Here's some ways that you demonstrate grace in your family. Do the unexpected for the undeserving. Do the unexpected. So when you go home today in your family, do something unexpected and don't determine whether a person deserves it or not. Of course they may not deserve it. I mean, which one of us in here deserves the grace of Christ? Anybody? Absolutely not. So do the unexpected for the undeserving. Here's another thing you do. Honor one another. Speak in love when anger arises. Speak in love. One of the things that's, that's, I, I learned from officiating basketball, and uh, this week I actually ejected the first coach I ever have in my basketball career. First, first time. I mean, he shouted two profanities at me back to back, and I, I, I had to deal with it. But even in then, I, I thanked God because I wasn't screaming back at him. You see, when someone's angry, a calm voice will soothe anger. Resist the natural urge to defend yourself. Speak in love. Eliminate certain words from your vocabulary when you do that. In a marriage, you shouldn't be talking about, I'm going to get a divorce. You shouldn't even be asking a question, do you want a divorce? Shouldn't be talking about, leave me alone and get out my face and all these kind of things. Speak in love. Practice regular family worship and prayer. Worship together. Pray together. Whenever you find time to do it, make it a regular part of your family life. Here's another one. Celebrate that which is true and beautiful. Life has enough ugliness in and of itself. Take what's true and beautiful and make a celebration. It doesn't have to be somebody's birthday to have a party. Amen. Go home and throw your, your maid a just because party. Just because you're my wife. Just because you're my husband. 
Just because we're a family. Just because. Celebrate that which is true and beautiful. Last thing. Be willing to go to the cross for those you love. And I'm going to tell you this as we close. This is one of the hardest things that you do in your family life. Is be willing to go to the cross for those you love. Think about what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He took on the sins of others when he himself was not guilty. Now we ourselves are guilty. How much more should we be willing because we've been given so much grace? How much more should we be willing to take on the sins of those in our family? Yes, we have to bear that burden. Yes, we have to deal with it. Go to the cross for the people you love and watch what the Holy Spirit will do in your home. He will say, there's been sacrifice, there's been a, 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 a cross experience. And after every cross experience, there's resurrection. And so if you want to see your family resurrected from where it is today, be willing to have a good Friday in your family. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so much today.